This is The Guardian. The Russian invasion of Ukraine sent shockwaves throughout the world as videos, pictures and first-hand accounts of the death, suffering and devastation came out of the country. It was as sudden as it was brutal and relentless. Ukrainians woke up to find themselves plunged into the midst of all explosions and air raid sirens ringing out here in Kyiv and cities across this country. The of, there's one. I don't know if you can hear that. Can you hear that, Mark? There is no reason to believe that they're going to stop anytime soon. And their objective clear, clearly, at least to me, seems to be the occupation of my entire country and uh, the destruction of everything that I love. And whilst it has shown how fragile peace and stability can be in the face of an autocrat, it's also brought into focus just how reliant Europe is on Russian fossil fuels. The price of oil surged over $100 a barrel in hours after Russia launched the attack. Gas prices across Europe soared by more than 30%. Europe as a continent is hugely dependent on Putin for the flow of its gas and oil. More than a third of Europe's gas supplies come from Russia. In recent months, this has meant Putin's regime has been able to squeeze supply, causing gas prices to soar. And it's now forcing countries to completely rethink how they supply energy to their citizens. Conversations have begun around renewables, nuclear, and even fracking. But what is the right solution? From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Fiona Harvey, you're The Guardian's environment correspondent, and you've been looking at the relationship between energy supplies, the Russian invasion into Ukraine, and the climate crisis. First off, setting the context for this, how significant is Russia as a supplier of fossil fuels? Russia is one of the world's biggest fossil fuel suppliers. It's a very resource-dependent economy. Russian industry never really recovered after the collapse of communism. And the whole economy really is built on resources, most of them either fossil fuels, oil and gas, or other minerals and metals which are very heavily dependent on energy. So Russia supplies the rest of the world, but mostly Europe. Germany uses Russian gas to heat its homes and power its industries and is becoming even more reliant on Russian gas as a transition fuel because it's moving away from coal, but it's also shut down its nuclear power stations. Uh, And... This dominance and this reliance that Russia has fostered in Europe is really beginning to be weaponized by Vladimir Putin. And that's really interesting, that idea of Russia weaponizing and politicizing Europe's dependence on gas. But aside from being a significant source of Russia's income as a country, why are people talking about energy supplies in relation to the invasion of Ukraine? 
First of all, people are dying in Ukraine. Uh, people are suffering because of this terrible invasion. And that's what we must be most concerned about. But the energy implications are being considered in capitals around the world as governments take on the fact that Vladimir Putin is using his energy dominance as a political and indeed a weapon of war. And the most important thing they can do is to get themselves off this dependency on uh, Russian gas and to a lesser extent on, on Russian oil and to move away from fossil fuels. And of course, we know that that's also what we need to do uh, if we want to save the climate. So it really is urgent on every kind of level. La décennie passée a été marquée par un doute international sur le nucléaire. Okay, let's talk about what countries are looking at doing in response. Starting with France, Emmanuel Macron has announced a renaissance for the French nuclear industry with a vast programme to build as many as 14 new reactors. These take a long time to build. What role could nuclear have? This is the thing. It does take a long time to build a new nuclear power station. Uh, it can take decades, in fact. There's different technology coming for small reactors, so it's possible that actually we could see nuclear coming along quicker if these new technologies fulfil their promise. But uh, nuclear can only be part of the answer. Some people would argue it shouldn't be part of the answer at all because, of course, you know, nuclear is a, a tricky technology. It does produce waste, which is radioactive and must be dealt with. And there are issues around the supply of nuclear material and uranium and so on. So it's not an easy option by any means. But France, of course, historically has responded to energy crises by ramping up nuclear and the French have one of the most advanced uh, nuclear power sectors in the world. So it's quite natural for them to turn to that. For other countries, it's more difficult to start ramping up nuclear power. Another non-renewable option that is being debated in the US and has been long debated here in the UK is fracking. What do you make of that as a solution? Fracking in the UK is going nowhere. We are a densely populated country. If you look at where fracking takes place in the United States, you can see that it's the devastation and industrialization of the landscape, and people will not stand for that here. So it's just not going to happen. People have been trying to frack in the UK for more than 10 years. I've followed them closely. That industry is just going nowhere. It's a dud, and anyone who thinks otherwise is deluded. In other parts of the world, in the United States, I imagine that fracking uh, will continue, but it's problematic there as well. It just leaks methane all the time, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So um, fracking is really not a good option. Really, it's something that we need to be getting rid of rather than doing more of. Let's talk then about the feasible options that are good for the climate, renewables. There are reports that Germany has said that it's going to aim for 100% renewables by 2035. In your view, how realistic is that? How quickly can we step up renewables? Well, Germany is coming from a good position in many ways because its renewable sector has grown fast. Over the past 10 years, the cost of solar energy and wind energy has plummeted to a point where they are cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, so there's an awful lot of scope there. There's also a tremendous scope for energy efficiency. Even in Germany, where they've done very well at becoming more energy efficient over the years, there are still houses that need to be insulated. There are still industries that are not working at their maximum efficiency. So there's an awful lot more 
that can be done here, and we need to explore all of those avenues. The Russian invasion into Ukraine has brought into stark relief the dependence of Europe on Russian gas, and frankly, on fossil fuels in general. And on Monday, we saw another grim report from the International Panel for Climate Change, warning that we need to stop using these as soon as we can if we want to secure a livable future. So, Fiona, could this be a catalytic moment for green energy? Yes, this could be. Though it's important to say that it should not take a war and all of the suffering that that entails to make people aware of the potential of green energy. Last November, at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, we saw countries pledging that they would keep global heating to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So countries need to start fulfilling that pledge What we've seen, as we've seen these very high energy prices, attacks started on net zero saying that the answer to high gas prices is more gas, um, which will not solve this crisis now and which will not head off future crises in decades to come, but which will destroy the planet. So it's an incredibly illogical argument. But those anti-net zero views have been getting some traction. They were being listened to in the highest echelons of government. But what we've seen now is the fact that if we want to continue relying on fossil fuels, we will be relying on some of the most autocratic and unpredictable, irresponsible and illiberal states in the world. You mentioned there the COP26 summit in Glasgow that you and I were both at, Fiona. And I think it really emphasises the international collaboration required to switch to green energy and to hit the climate targets that you've described. So I wonder, how will all this feed into ongoing climate diplomacy and the likelihood of Russia coming to the table at the next summit, COP27? Well, Russia was almost invisible at COP26, quite deliberately. Russia, of course, has these huge fossil fuel interests and does very little to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, Russia could do an immense amount just by uh, stopping the leaks in its infrastructure. And the IEA, the International Energy Agency, did a report last week on this showing that it wouldn't even cost them anything. It would make them a profit uh, if they did so. But they won't because it's not something that that Vladimir Putin cares about. And we're all seeing very clearly at the moment what Vladimir Putin does care about. And so it's going to make things very difficult at COP27 in, in many respects. What needs to happen is for other fossil fuel exporters to explain what they're going to do. One of the things that I find really difficult to get my head around in a way is that As you've said, it's taken something as tragic and as awful as war to wake up a lot of the world's politicians to what a dependency on one state providing a lot of their fossil fuels really means in reality. And yet we have known for a long time about the damage that's done by fossil fuels. This is a crisis that hasn't happened overnight, and yet it does feel that it's happened now very suddenly. Humanity seems to sleepwalk 
into crises all the time. I don't know quite why that is, but perhaps we could do better in future. We need to see that a large part of geopolitics is dependent on resources, in particular fossil fuels, and look at the implications of that and try to head off these conflicts before they happen. I think it's possible to argue now that it will be a safer world as well as a cleaner world um, if we go for uh, renewable energy and get off fossil fuels. Climate change itself has the power to worsen, if not create, conflicts. And having seen the consequences of this conflict at present and of other conflicts around the world, we should be doing everything that we can to stop the threat of climate change, making all of this so much worse. Fiona, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Fiona Harvey. You can find links to her articles covering the climate crisis, energy and its links to the Russian invasion of Ukraine on our podcast webpage. You can also get all the rest of our coverage on the Ukraine invasion at theguardian.com. For more on Ukraine, do subscribe and listen to our sister podcast, Politics Weekly UK, with host John Harris, which is out every Thursday. And if you enjoy listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast, as Jonathan's show won't be available on Politics Weekly UK for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all of the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America, out every Friday. And that's it from Science Weekly today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Max Sanderson. And the executive producers were Max Sanderson and Daniel Stevens. And we'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Thank you.